Oral arguments before the Supreme Court yesterday trying to determine whether or not to uphold a federal law that prohibits people that are under domestic violence restraining orders from owning firearms. And it certainly seemed that the justices, those both conservative and on the other side, were leaning towards saying, yes, this is common sense and this is something that we should preserve. At one point, uh, Justice Roberts getting into an interesting exchange with the plaintiff's attorney who had argued that this can be incredibly subjective, that there is no conviction of domestic violence and that it's a violation of the Second Amendment right. You don't have any doubt that your client's a dangerous person, do you? Your Honor, I would want to know what dangerous person means. At well, the I moment. mean, someone who's shooting, uh, uh, you know, at people, uh, that's a good start. So, so it, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but it's, and that is, that is really the question. And the, the Mr. Rahimi, who is the plaintiff in this case, is not exactly the most appealing poster child for Second Amendment rights. He did um, shoot at several people. He is a dangerous person. But be that as it may, does it mean that someone, do you, do you forfeit due process and take someone's guns away based mainly on just an allegation? Watching all of this with interest uh, as senior legal fellow at the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Conservative Heritage Foundation is Amy Swearer. Amy, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Let's look at this from both sides. Um, it's it's the uh, Solicitor General and some of the justices said, look, this has been part of our uh, gun regulation or Second Amendment history going back decades, if not centuries, that dangerous people should not have guns. Yeah, so I, I think let, let's take a second and, and put this case in context to help understand why it's importance is actually a lot greater than the issue of whether the Supreme Court strikes down or upholds this particular statute, right? So you got to go back to 2022 uh, in the summer with the Bruin case, where the Supreme Court strikes down New York's uh, very restrictive concealed carry law. Um, But what it also does is it gives for the first time the test that judges have to use when analyzing these Second Amendment cases. And it's all based off of historical analogy. Is this remotely sort of like the historical tradition of regulating firearms that we've seen in the United States? And so judges, uh, since then, you've seen sort of the slew of litigation, um, relitigating a a lot of um, cases that we've seen in the past, but under this new test. And there was a lot of hope, I think, amongst uh, Second Amendment advocates that what you would see was a very, you know, something like in Heller, McDonald or Bruin, where you had a very sympathetic plaintiff, a very clear cut case, um, you know, where, where this, there was no historical analog. And instead, the case that wins the race back is is Rahimi, uh, which, as you have I think, very adequately described Rahimi, I think most people would agree is not a very good dude. Um, there's, there's a, in fact, I think he's actually in prison right now on a lot of state conviction charges, um, uh, for, like you said, shooting at a lot of people. But the question becomes, can the federal government also charge him on top of this for being uh, a, a person who possessed guns with this type of restraining order? And so I, I think if that makes sense, it's a broader context of it's less about 
can Mr. Rahimi be charged specifically and more a question of how, when this opinion comes out, how does the court uphold or strike it down? Because what they're actually doing is giving uh, the, the rest of the, the, the U.S. legal system um, uh, sort of a, a framework to work off of for all of these other right. cases about how this historical analogy test is supposed to work. So there is actually a way in which Mr. Rahimi loses, but the Second Amendment uh, wins in terms of how it's going to go forward in every other case. With greater clarity. Right. Uh, Amy, uh, could this uh, decision also affect law enforcement officers as well? Uh, to, to an extent. I, I mean, certainly I, I think there is, and this is the argument that the government has made, well, if, if we don't, if we can't uh, in, in all of these cases put down these restraining orders and, and tell people who are accused of domestic violence well, you, you can't have a gun. Well, then that's going to be dangerous for domestic violence victims and also law enforcement. And one of Mr. Rahimi's stronger arguments, and I think the stronger Second Amendment argument was, well, that didn't even work in this case. Um, you know, that's probably in a lot of cases not the most effective means. If you go back to the, the lower court's opinion in this, it's actually what they said is, look, the government had a lot of very unquestionable uh, ways of, of disarming him, right? They could have uh, actually charged him with domestic violence, held him uh, instead of giving him bail and releasing him to, into the public. Um, you know, they, they could have done what they've done now, which is convict him and put him in prison where he can't continue to harm people. Um, and those are actually going to be their most effective options. But, you know, that is correct. That is something the government has argued um, is that, you know, even for as much as Mr. Rahimi said, you know, who cares about this restraining order? I'm going to get a gun and shoot people. Um, that it might be effective in other cases. Um, and, of course, the counter-argument is, well, in a lot of other cases that are not Mr. Rahimi, you might have someone who's not actually dangerous. You haven't charged them with anything necessarily. Um, you've just sort of said, eh, you might be dangerous, but we're not going to have a trial to determine whether you've actually committed a crime. Uh, the Solicitor General appealing the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said something that's very obvious. The difference between a battered woman and a dead woman is the presence of a gun. So obviously the safety of women is at heart here. Um, but defining dangerousness is going to be tough, although the justices seem like they might be willing to do that. Yeah, and, and I think, again, that's where what's really going to matter here. Uh, in the broader Second Amendment context is going to be how the justices actually come to this right. conclusion. What coalition do you get, especially amongst the conservatives, mm -hmm. um, where they can agree upon uh, the, the, the actual implementation of this framework? Um, and, I, and I also think what you will probably see after this, regardless of what happens, is there are a number of cases, uh, including one out of, I believe, the Tenth Circuit, um, that the court can take up to help continue to clarify this. So there's um, a, a case uh, um, with an individual named Range, who is, okay. is very clearly, he's like the opposite of Rahimi. Um, he, he's a, accused of understating his, his income in the 1990s to help feed his family with food stamps, which in Pennsylvania, uh, for technical reasons, ends up getting you disarmed for the rest of your right. life. Um, so I think they can take that up as sort of the antithesis of Rahimi and help clarify where that line is. Yeah, the real question well. here is what legal path are they going to chart here in order to get to this result? Uh, we, we thank you so much, Amy Swear, for your time. Thank you so much for having me.